Okay. Okay. <laughs> it should just be that little record symbol that we used to be used to, you know? Okay. Let's get going. So again, the goal of this medrash and the way it plods along, at least <laughs> technically, I don't mean plod in a bad way, is to go from word to word to word and explain what that word means. That's sort of the very superficial structure. Um, but many other things are actually going on when we read how these things are being interpreted. They maybe even bring into question um, the classification of medrash as simply interpretation or even commentary. Let's see, let's see how this works. Um, any volunteers for the first Ashira Lashem? Okay. The usual suspects. <laughs> okay, what does that mean? Um, anyone have another interpretation? Slight, somewhat like that. What, Sharon? Correct. It is pleasant because it's appropriate. Like, yeah. Eh. Um, so, greatness, strength, um, glory, eternity, etc., etc., is fitting for Hashem. Or these are fitting descriptions of God. And that's how the Medrash opens its discussion of Ashira Lashem. And let's see how it proves it. Okay, so let's stop there. That's our first um, first unit, right? And so, you know, David said, to you, God, is greatness, um, strength, glory, eternity, and another word for glory. Um, all of those things are attributes of you, God. What has happened here? What have, what have we read? And more importantly, what have we learned? What has this done for us? So some of the other Medrashim that we saw, there was a difficult word or a word that the Medrash didn't want us to understand in way A and proposed way B to understand it. What's going on here, though? Yes? Well, they're thinking of as like, Ashir Lashem, Tige Mm-hmm. And like playing around with Gao, he's saying it's not. Instead of Gimel Ayan, hey, they're saying it's Nun Ayan. Sorry, Gimel Alf, hey, it's Nun Alf, hey. Does anyone agree with that? I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I never thought true. about that. Okay, let's leave that as a possibility and continue. We're going to come back to this line, unless anyone has another suggestion as to what's happening here. Clearly, the meaning of Ashira is being expanded. In what way? That it's not or just sheer singing. It's praise, actually. Okay. Okay. Good. Let's see what the mashal is. Now there's a mashal. Yeah. So why don't you continue? Okay. 
Okay. Which uh, story that we grew up with as children does this mashal recall? The emperor's new clothes. The emperor has no clothes. So you have this king, a king of flesh and blood, that is, who goes into a country and everyone is praising them. I actually just did a little research on the word kilus. It's true, mekalsin can mean both praise and um, and derision. In this context, it obviously means praise, but um, I thought it would be interesting just to talk for a bit about this word, a few possibilities. One is that the derision, the primary meaning, so to speak, is is praise. And, um, you know, as we often find in Hebrew and Aramaic, for that matter, when you want to say something that's not so nice, you'll use a nice word and it'll be lashon sagi nehor, right? It'll be euphemistic. Uh, but that's probably not what it really is. The, it seems like there's a strange coincidence. Kilus um, means praise because or beauty really because of a similar Greek word and it's a loan word and um, the other kilus which is derision might be related to a word in Ugaritic. In other words as much as I had this little Torah that I told some people that it, it's about Lashen Saginor we might have other factors at work here that's just a linguistic comment. I also wanted to mention something from a few weeks ago uh, when we were learning about um, the king's clothing and the word was poor pare the little little entry into the Oxford English Dictionary shows that the word is an old Latin word, which means both purple and um, and um, and royal royal dress because there's this old association between the color purple and royal dress, and that's you know that's where the word came from the from in the Medrash. So back to the you know matter at hand. You have a king who is praised, obviously not to write it, who's praised in all of these different ways, but he doesn't have any of these things. Um, it sort of reminds you of the current political situation, especially in Israel right now. We've been following the news. So he, he is praised for all of these attributes which he doesn't have. Now, what about God? So let's go... Um, right, I'm sorry, in the last three words of that section, elakol machnifilo, right? This is the word chanifa. Right, flattering, and it's not a good in uh, in the rabbinic lexicon. Flattering is not not something you want to do. Okay, aval. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. So, how does it work with God? That even if you praise Him, that's not. There's always more to say. Right. So first of all, it's a very interesting statement because it's not simply saying that God's better than man and God is worthy of praise and man isn't worthy of praise. It it points to a tension and a problem in praise. And it essentially says that per accurate praise is almost impossible. It doesn't really happen. If you praise a human and you say that he's wonderful in 30 million ways, it's not going to be true. It'll never be true almost. That's the typical situation with the king of flesh and blood. And on the other hand, even if you try to praise someone who really, something that really is worthy of praise, which is God, you also want to accomplish your goal. So praise, to begin with, is, is problematic. It never will be accurate. With God, it'll be below, you know, the, uh, below the line, below the bar. And with man, it'll be above the bar. It's interesting that, you know, this is here at the beginning of an explanation of the Az Yashir, because this is really 
attention that's that's going to be addressed though in the other end of the spectrum not because as is trying to praise man but is trying to praise god and as much as the poetics of this sheer or shira of Az Yashir are going to be high and lofty, it will always it will always come short. It will never capture, you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attributes. So that's, I think, part of what the Mashal is doing. Um, and before we go back to the previous line, which we, you know, never really, you know, we had one suggestion, Na'en, Ga'en, I'm not fully convinced. I didn't think of it, and it is very interesting, but I'm not convinced as if that's what's going on. Um, let's see. Let's see the next uh, possible, the next line. New volunteer for this? Ashir l'Hashem shuhu gibor. Sounds good. Okay, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines down. In the middle of the line. One more. One above that. Sorry, it's a small copy. Yeah. And one more pasuk. Yeah. Okay, good. So now we have another mm-hmm. comment on Ashir Lashem, which is what? What is God in this context? Gibor. Right? God, God is mighty. And we have a series of proof, te- proof texts where Hashem, God's name, is associated with Gvura. In Dvarim, Hashem Yisus v'gibor, Hashem gibor melchama. In Yishayahu, Hashem kigibor yitzay, etc., etc. In Yirmiyahu, Hashem gadol atav v'gadol shimcha b'gvura. Okay? So, so far we have, if we put two and two together, the first section says, what's going on with Hashir l'Hashem? Ne'egdula l'Hashem, ne'egvura l'Hashem, ne'etiferet v'netzach v'hu l'Hashem. And it does this. It says that God is glorious and great, and worthy of honor in all of these ways because of something that David Melech says. One of them is Gvura, by the way. And then it hones in, so to speak, on Gvura and shows how God um, how God is strong by linking together these psukim. Yeah. Okay, are we any closer to understanding what's going on here? I mean, I think there's something that you might think is happening here, which I don't think is happening here. What's a very common rabbinic method of interpretation of words, right? If if Chazal want to know what a word is, so and it's difficult. So what are one of the things that what are some of the things that they can do? Well, you try to find instances of it. That Good. And what's that called? I mean, there's a very technical term oh, for yeah, that, called, especially oh, in halacha. Not hekesh. Zerashava. Right. There's a in generally in a more halachic context, a word that appears in context A and appears in context B, so context B can illuminate what the word means also in context A. So one might think, and I don't think this is really what's going on, that the, it, you know, in this case, what's the lexeme, you know, what's the word we're interested in the Gzera Shava? Hashem. And we're going to figure out, we're going to figure out what Hashem is, right? 
everyone's tried to figure it out for thousands of years. Philosophers, everyone else has been pondering God, and we're going to use the tool of Gzera Shava. We'll say that, look, David Amalek says God is Gdul, Gvur, and Tiferet, and Netzach, and Hod, and, um, and we find this Pesukim in Dvarim, Yirmiyahu, Yishayahu, Tehillim, that God is especially Gvura, and by way of Kseresh Shava, we will figure out what God is all about. Now, I don't think the only reason why this isn't true is because, A, the Rama would be sort of rolling over in his grave that you're trying to figure out using attributes um, that are associated with the name Hashem of what God is. I think something else is going on, and we're going to go further and see if we can figure it out. We have another example of what Ashir Hashem is. Maybe you can continue because you just read a few lines. Ashir, I'm sorry, the place. Ashir Hashem Shu Ashir. Okay, Okay. And let's stop there. So now what do we have? Another association of what God is, which it is... have gone very far from Shirat. I mean, yes, from the literal well, meaning of... Correct. Yes. Let's see, but let's see where this takes us. Okay. So what? what is this new attribute now? Um, Ashir. Uh, yeah, but not in the sense of um, money or, or hmm. rich so much in the sense of because everything in the world is his. Right. So it is. I mean, money yeah. is a representation yeah, of wealth. So. Yeah. But yes, everything is his. Yeah. Shamayim, Aretzim Loa, Yam, actual Kesev and Zahav, you know, currency in a sense, yeah. gold and silver, um, and even Nifashot. I don't think the point of that Pazikin Yichazkul is at the end, but the beginning. So we have a new interpretation. Um, this one, I might be tempted to say, is a play on the word Ashira and Ashir. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, and let's finally, this is the second to last one. Ashir Lashem Shu Chacham. This is Aramaic. Wisdom and knowledge to those of understanding. And continues. Comparing God in terms of the wisdom of others. And that ends God being the Chacham. So we have God, the the strong one, the, really the god, the strong god of war. We have the rich god. We have the um, wise god. And I'll just continue this. Ashir l'ashem shu rachaman, that he is merciful. Shnamar Hashem Hashem el rachum v'chanun, v'omar ki el rachum Hashem, v'omar zechor rachamecha, v'omar tov Hashem l'chol u'rachamav, v'om l'ashem elokeinu harachamim v'aslichot. And that ends... God as a Rachaman, as merciful. And finally, the closing, I'm sorry, the second to last one is Shudayan. Asher Lashem Shudayan. Shnamar ki mishpat lelokim hu, v'omer lokim nitzav ba'adat el, v'omer atzort min pa'alo, 
which also deals with the fact that he is a Dayan. And then finally, Shir Lashem Shehu Ne'eman. Shne'emar ha'kel ha'ne'eman, v'omer kel emuna ve'en avel, ha'lo na'e u'gdula ha'lo na'e g'dula u'gvura v'tiferet. Okay, so really, once we go beyond those first two lines, we see that it, I don't think we're honing on, on you know, we have a na'e and ga'e, or we have even ashira and ashira. We, ha- we have a litany of different praises of God that are sort of sparked and flow and, and kind of flow out of, you know, the Medrash's mouth, so to speak, um, suddenly. But again, what does this contribute to the explanation and interpretation of the Pasuk? Yes. Right, that is the context because here. We, especially if we know that Paro had no free will and he was forced to take the route he took. So if you want, so maybe this explains how God had the right to do what he did and what that he is how before. So? But he owns the souls, he owns the world, he he's truly Rahman, he's truly um, Ne'eman. Ne'eman. That he that he had he was within his rights when he did this. Aha. Uh-huh. It's possible. I don't know if the perspective of people who've just been subjugated, who might not have even known this whole, you know, play that God did by taking away Paro's free will at some point, if their perspective, and that's the Shira's coming from, you know, B'nai Silt's perspective, would be sort of in that direction, trying to justify how could these oppressors who've oppressed us for hundreds of years be, you know, destroyed. I think the there's a real church, poetic justice is that there. Talking to the reader? I mean, is it, In other words, you would say it's reader? talking to us. Okay, that's possible. I, I just don't know. I, I understand us as, you know, living in the year 2008, that, you know, the issue of free will certainly jumps off the page and is very bothersome. I don't know if that's, you know, if for this message that would be, you know, the thing in the radar screen which would, which would initiate really this whole you know, this whole medrash. It's interesting, but I'm not sure if that's what's going on. Yes? Yeah. Could. I think it... I think that's really what's going on here. What I mean is that generally we understand Medrash is interpreting Psukim, explaining what's going on, filling in gaps in the narrative, etc., etc. Something happens here, and I'm not the first to notice this. Something happens here in Masechta Deshirata that is, it's, it's not entirely unique, but is definitely noteworthy, that basically the Medrash breaks into song on its own. There's an even bit better example that happens next. Now, it's not, there are, there's something that's happening even exegetically, in a sense, while it breaks into song. But because the Medrash is interpreting this song, really this, you know, one of the greatest songs, it basically partakes in the mood of Az Yashir. Right, Az Yashir, and especially at the beginning, Ashir la Hashem, which begins, you know, the 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 praise, 
there's a short meditation on the impossibility of praising in general both man and God. But ultimately, the momentum gets going, the psukim um, start rolling in, and we have a form of a midrashic song. Before we get more into that, I want to even show you the next part, which is even, I think, a better example of this. Um, so in the last medrash, we pretty much had proof texts for each of these midot of God. right? We would say, God is a gibor, bring psukin that he's a gibor. God is an ashir, cite psukin that he's an ashir. Look at this one. Ashir l'ashem again, shu na'eh, shu hador, shu mshubach, ve'en karko. So that he is, here it, it isn't simply fitting, but like, you know, the other meaning that he is, you know, beautiful, that he is glorious, that he is praiseworthy, ve'en karko. Again, right, focusing on something that we raised earlier, that there's no, there's no way to assess God, right? God has no eruchin, God is beyond assessment, you can't really capture God. Okay, Shneamar, Kiv Mivishachak Yerochlashem Yidma Lashem Bivneilim. Right? Who of all the litany of gods and of forces and powers could compare to the real God? Vomer Kelna Rats Besod Kedoshim Rabav, Omer Shemtla Sivakot Mi Kamocha Chasin Ka. And we'll stop there for the time being. The Psukim are proof texts for what? Right? We have three Psukim that describe. The, the fact that God can't be compared to anything. God is above everything. So what part of the, of the phrase, does that elucidate? Just the last part, right? It's simply, how do we know that there's nothing like God? I'll tell you how, because we have these psukim and tilim peitet that emphasize God being just wholly different than anything else, any other force, any other power in existence. <coughs> Now, the beginning part, again, I think is part of a song, in a sense, that the Midrashist is just breaking into song. I know this is somewhat radical. It's a different way of reading Midrash. Um, it's funny because, sorry, what's your name again? I always forget. Mine? Yeah. Oh, Arona. So Arona showed me an article right before we were walking in, and this, after I already knew what, what we were going to be doing today, about... Medrash not simply being commentary, but being literature, right? Now, not literature in sort of a secular sense, but literature in that it stands on its own. It it has its own contribution beyond simply interpreting something else. I think that's very much what happens here in a Medrash like, you know, Besechta the Shirata of the Mechilta. It is, there are certain things that are happening Hashem is being associated with these different psukim. We've talked many times about what associating different psukim, especially in the Vimuktuvim, means and Medrash, and how it illuminates psukim and chumash. But I think ultimately the thrust of this section is really stands on its own, not merely as commentary, but breaking into song. Um, along the way, things will be explained. So we have a pasuk in Tilim Peitet that uses the word you know, tzvakot, what does that mean? So anyone want to pick up here? Third line down, Chava? Or even like a sign, like a banner, one could even say. I mean, I, I'm using that interpretation of Od because of, 
of the um, of the rest, right? V'chein hu omer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's stop there. Then something else happens again. So Vikhain David Omer and Kamukha Belokim Ashevin Kamasecha. Even before that, I'm sorry. Let's stop before that. In other words, you have two Psukim that sort of explain this idea that God is an oat, is a emblem, so to speak, a sign in his army. Right? He doesn't simply stay home. This is all Kaviyachal. And we'll talk about real Kaviyachals in a minute. But he doesn't simply stay home in his palace while his army goes to war, but he is actually an oath. He's like this banner raised during the um, during the battle. So, like we have over here, Vatam Rivivot Kodesh, Otu Betoch Rivivot Kodesh He's amongst these multitudes and he's present there. Okay, so I think that we simply have another explanation, uh, an explanation, an explanation that just wanted to do something with the pasuk and tefillin peitet. So again, up until this point, we have a line of sukim that are brought ostensibly simply to explain what God, what are different praises of God that are so associated with the Shem Hashem. But I would argue that the medrash is simply partaking in a song. Now, there's more to you know, there's more to this than simply just reading these two paragraphs. We also have to think about, and we've discussed this a bit before, the context of a medrash like this. We spoke about the context of a medrash like Vayikra Rabbah, right? The, or Eicha Rabbah, or Breshid Rabbah, if it's a, especially if it's a homiletical medrash. Is the context the synagogue, right? Is this a drasha that would be given over to the congregants? And will that affect the, the style? Of course it will, because audience determines how something is written or how something is told. What's What might be the context over here? I mean, in general, in Mechilta, has anyone ever learned Haggadah Bi'iyun? Not simply little Vartlach. I'm sure many of you have. Where does a, the bulk, the center of the, of the Haggadah is not Hareini Kiven Shivim Shana and all the stuff at the beginning, which describes the mitzvah that we're about to embark on, but is begins really where? What's the heart of the Haggadah? Selamad, which begins what? What is that? It's Medrashalacha, right? It's, that, it's very Agadic, but that's actually primarily the same stuff appears in Mechilta, right? It's Mechilta. And it's, on one hand, exegesis. You know, what does it mean, you know, Mitsuyanim, that the Jewish Mitsuyanim? Oh, it means, you know, Lo Shanu, etc., etc. What does this mean? What does that mean? And it, carries the form of Medrash. So it's sort of funny, you know, all the fun stuff that happens in the Haggadah is when you're talking about Rabbi Lazar and Azariah's beard growing old. And here, the boring stuff where it's simply telling you what each word means, you know, what does it mean, Anivala Malach, that's, that's actually where the action truly is. And the context there is one, becomes or turns into one of praise. In other words, you read through the Haggadah, you go through the depths of Mitzrayim, you go through the plagues, and suddenly you have something very curious that happens, right? Instead of saying a complete Hallel at a later time, at a later point, even saying Hallel in the evening is weird enough, mm-hmm. you suddenly, at the conclusion of the Haggadah, burst into song. 
right i'm sorry the conclusion of Magid. i should i should emphasize right right as you you know come to the climax yes we also have to get this matzah and ufland stuff out of the way but ultimately after you tell the story and you tell the story as the medrash would like you to tell it you know with detail and explaining what each word means you break into song and you at least get two two um you know two paragraphs of Hallel in there because you simply can't hold back. I think that might be that might explain part of what the context is here. I don't know, you know, how these were written, where these were written, for whom they were written, but it certainly gives the sense that when Medrash, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, when Az Yashir would have been interpreted and the context in which it's interpreted, it's one which just leads ultimately to praise. I don't know if that could happen in the base Medrash. Maybe it can, but. I think that context is clearly there. One in which, you know, th- those who are interpreting it become so enwrapped in what Asyashir is, is, which is not simply a narrative, but this great song that they themselves burst into song. <clears throat> but it takes it to another level. And this is a curious few lines, um, which uh, I don't know if I have a really good explanation as to what they're doing here, but let's read it nevertheless. Vichain David Omer... So Chava just read that. When you continue, let's start again from there because I think that's where the unit starts. Okay. What's happening here? First of all, let's translate it even though it's just psukim. But we have the keyword v'chein David Omer, so we're trying to link something that happened previously to something that's happening now. So, so David said, um, "There is no one like you among." So, what do you think the v'chein is doing at this point? What is the v'chein referring so, back to? Good. In other words, in that opening statement of this paragraph, so ve'in karko is now again being explained here with a with a pasuk in tilim pevav. Right, the previous psukim were tilim petet, and then we had a little side to explain what zvakot meant. But that was tilim petet's contribution to understanding in karko, and here we have tilim pevav, which continues to explain that there's nothing like God. But then what happens, right? So then we move away from Tehillim. Um, okay, but we know what these, well, actually, who, me, Amar, me, that's always the very difficult question. I'm saying just in the Pshat level, um, in Shir Shirim. So this is Dodit Sachva Do. So who's talking? Right, so in other words, the female side in Shir Shirim is describing the male side the Dode, and she describes him as a very beautiful, handsome person. Sachvadom, right, he's like ruddy, Roshoketem Paz, these dove like eyes, beautiful cheeks, etc., 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 strong legs, um, period. What happened? Like, where did we go and why? Yes. Okay. No, no, no. It's it's a very good point. And that's the tension here. I mean, ultimately, you know, we start with this statement that <clears throat> man can't be described. 
because if you try to describe him, and not, not that he can't be described, but when one tries to describe a king, you'll always overshoot. And God, too, even when you describe him, you're, gonna, you're going to undershoot. So we have Shir Shir, which are very physical descriptions, um, and we're assuming that the description is God here. Right, that's that's how we're reading Shir Shirim. So your point is, it's almost ironic, I guess. Okay. Yes. I mean, after describing God as like this warrior, he goes out to war, etc., we're just describing more of like a softer attitude towards him as if we're a beloved. And in both aspects, he stands above all. He like he can't be compared to anyone. Good. I mean, I don't know if before. I mean, before we describing him as a gibor, as you know, as a mighty warrior, was just one one of a number of descriptions. We also described him as a rachaman. No, no, I mean before, meaning the sentence, like the one just before. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, I'm sorry. We described him as in Karakot, all about Sokol, the art, Sokol, as his legion, the leader of the known legion, you know, um, they were all about that, where this is more of like a beloved, just like a that's nice. That's nice. I mean, what still bothers me, and, and I don't have a solution for this, is that v'cheni omer, right? That form we're trying to link, we're trying to link what, with something that happened previously, right? So I think you know, there's no question, you know, what as Chava said, the v'chein David omer is trying to link this pasuk from Tilim Pevav with the ein ka'arkos statement that we begin with, right? So really, I mean, the irony that Sharon points out is very stark. It's not simply that, you know, in general, we've talked about the impossibility of describing God. But right here, and we even have a v'chein Omer, suddenly we are describing God not simply the way we were a paragraph ago, that he's strong, he's merciful, but with the most physical descriptions that one can conjure up, right? They're simply descri- they're describing a beautiful person, a beautiful human being. I mean, that's what Shir Shem is doing. It's understood as referring to God, and somehow this is v'chein hu omer, right? And so, you know, and so we have another source for this idea of Aim ka'arko. It's a mystery to me. I really don't know what to do with it, especially because of the v'chein hu omer. But I think ultimately it's moving in this direction, you know, even further about breaking into song. We're going to get the next half of this. We're going to learn something from Shir Shirm Rabbah. Actually, before I go on, yes. I hear, I just said, in other words, just like the dode is described as this perfect, you know, human beauty, so too God is. I just, I, I wish, and I'm, I don't know Shir Shirim that well, but there must be a Pasuk Shir Shirim that could have done it better, even if we wanted Shir Shirim, that could have said like, no one's like my dode. I don't know if there's a Pasuk, oh, Madodech, my dode. There you go. So, you know, I don't know if this is the pasuk that um, that would do that. It is a description of, you know, this beautiful human being, but I don't know if we have the sense of unattainability. We simply have these, you know, beautiful descriptions. Um, so I, I think one, and, and this really doesn't explain the v'chein homer. Yes. Like, 
That's very good. We're when we when we when we start talking about Shir Shirim in a few minutes, um, we'll talk about that. But that's really the ultimate challenge with Shir Shirim, and again, the problem with Shir Shirim in terms of descriptions, right? So we all know, and I'm going to get into it in detail. I might even have an art school reading for a few minutes. Shir Shirim, the way it's told, is a love story, right? That's the shot of Shir Shirim. That you have a man who loves a woman, they describe their love for each other, the love always seems to be unattainable, he's always, you know, she, she misses an opportunity, etc., etc. That's the pshat, so to speak. But even the pshat acknowledges that Shir Shirim itself, on a pshat level, is one big allegory, right? His, he doesn't have dove eyes, that would be freaky. He has <laughs> eyes that are beautiful like eyes. Like like doves, his legs aren't like iron or gold. That would be just far out. His legs are beautiful like gold. So in other words, even when you read, were you to read Shir Shirim simply in a shot level as as love letters, so to speak, and say it's just a bunch of love letters, even were you to do such a thing, you wouldn't simply be able to read it straight. You are Shir Shirim is saying you are wonderful, you are beautiful. It has these allegor these allegorical, really metaphorical. Um, we'll get into allegory in a second, but really metaphorical, you know, poetic usages that describe the dough. So that might be something that's going on here. In other words, Chazal understand, and we'll see what Chazal have to say about Shir Shirim, that it's not simply, you know, to be taken on that only on that shot level. And you know, maybe that's 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 the point. Just as this must be interpreted, you know, in another way. So and and in a way which can't take this simple, you know, simple meaning. So to God Himself is, you know, above Erech. Again, that leaves a lot unsaid, and I think it's a it's an interesting interpretation, but that leaves a lot unsaid. And I still have the problem with Vichenu Omer. Vichenu Omer is supposed to be like a proof text. The last thing I'll say on the on this section, because we have to finish, um, um, you know, this Mechelta, is that in general, Shir Shirim. A good rabbah, a good part of Shir Shem Rabbah, which we'll see in a bit, is interested in interpreting Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. And a good deal of Shir Shem Rabbah is interested in interpreting specifically what happens on, on, on the Yamsu. Not all of it, but a really, a, 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 a real high percentage of the Midrash. So I don't even, I don't know when, you know, when we could say that that became the dominant understanding of Shir Shirim. But that may be a way of explaining sort of how this comes here. It is a description of God. It's a very specific description of God. And it has that problem with, you know, God defies description. But it does have this association, this old association, with the praise of God. Shir Shirim praises the Dod, and the Rayaf for that matter, but praises the Dod. And Az Yashir praises God. And somehow the Psukim come together. I'm not satisfied. I don't know, I don't know what to do with the Vecheri Omer, but I think that... That's something that we should kind of keep in mind. And finally, if we're to close, you know, close the section and move away for a second, we get back to, even though we're not interpreting Shemot, we get back to some more standard exegetical methods. Rabbi Yosei Glil Omer Hareyu Omer Mipil Olim Yom Kim Taos, right, from the mouths of, I won't translate, Olim and Yom Kim, right, Oz has been established. What does this Pasuk mean exactly? 
I don't know. Anyone know? I heard some problems with it. Somehow the strength is established, is laid down through the mouths of Olalim and Yonkim. But who are... Yes? Okay. Are able to, okay, and that seems to be what's going on here. But the quite the, the um, philological question is, who are the Ololim and who are the Yonkim? So we're we're back in kind of the standard word, world of Medrash. Mipiyololim. One interpretation is elu ubrim man. These refer to fetuses in their mothers in their mothers' wombs. Shnamar askin pol tamun lo ayek ololim. Lorau or Eov saying, you know, were I not to have been born, when he says, you know, um Lo Rau or if only I were like Olalim who never saw light. So Olalim obviously can't be small children, they have to be even fetuses who never saw the light of day, who never saw the earth. Um Kim, what does that word mean according to this first interpretation? Very simply, These are nursing children, and at the age of nursing and that's why the word yonek, right, nurse, is used to describe children of these age, this age. Shnamar asul ololim yonke shadayim, right? Yonke shadayim, it's associated with shadayim, right, nursing the breast. So that must mean that there are small children who are nursing. Rabbi Omer, different interpretation, ololim elolim shebechutz. He says, no, ololim actually referred not to fetuses, but already to infants who are born. Shnamar lachrit olel michutz, and you have this association with olel and chutz. There is a lot to talk about with this pasuk, but we don't have time. Vaomer ololim shalu lechem. There, it's clear, right? And it's it's sort of ironic, you know, in the in, in, in the in the context of shirah of um, shiratayam. But we're describing, you know, children who are asking for bread. Fetuses don't ask for bread. Children who are born cry for bread. And yonkim elush al shteiman, very similar. The same thing. Same pasuk. Either way, however you interpret these ololim and yonkim, right? The first interpretation is sort of more radical that these are actually fetuses. Both sets, the ololim and yonkim, both open and recite shira on the yam, right? In other words, the, the pasuk itself. Tilim Chet simply says, Mipi Ololim Vionkim Yisarata Oz. Okay? It doesn't say anything explicit about Shirat Hayam. It's in Tehillim. Tilim could describe Shirat Hayam very explicitly. In this case, it's not exactly the most explicit reference to Shirat Hayam. And yet, we're explaining that this Pasuk refers to Shirat Hayam, right? This is um, a common method. Shnamar Ashir Lashem. So, how does the exegesis work? And we'll stop here. Now that we're back in regular Midrashic territory, we're trying to interpret a Pasuk here in Tehillim and trying to explain refers to Shirat Hayam. What's the proof exactly? I don't know if it's that simple, if it's this Pasuk in front of us. Yes? I think so. In in Az Yashir, God, you know, God is described famously as my strength. Right? That's what I was referring to in what the word oz means. What does the Pusuk mean? Whatever these Olim and Yonkim are, they're very small or unborn, you know, children. They establish, you know, Yisarata Oz. 
What is the O's? So I think in this context we're saying Hashem, you know, Hashem is my strength. Hashem is the O's. So that's how Yisara Taos through these um, through these these children and Rabbi Meir actually. It's the text is a little strange here because we already have an opinion that said this. So here it's kind of repetitive. But Rabbi Meir Omer essentially going back to the first opinion. In other words, Rabbi defines Onkim Ololim and Yonkim as two different kinds of living children. And he said both of them opened their mouths and said Shira. Rabbi Meir seems to be the first opinion who simply at that point interpreted what Yonkim and Ololim are and now says the same thing. According to my interpretation that Ololim are fetuses, even they, right, and here he has a different proof text. So we are in regular midrashic territory here, technically, and we have different proof texts. We don't really have time to explain how the Tehillim one works, but anyone have a quick thing to say about that or no? But, yeah, bimikalot. Well, it's really under the fact that they had. Yes. Um, it's under the fact that Hashem refers to El. Good. Makor. Right. The Makor refers to the womb, so Hashem is becoming praised through the Makor, through the womb. But. The point is, is that even when we're in this regular midrashic territory, where we are doing more regular forms of exegesis, first of all, you have a little bizarro image here. You have like the fetuses somehow, according to Rabbi Meir. You know, you know, you can hear them through, you know, their mother's uh, womb, but are actually bursting into song. This is kind of the the regular expression, the regular representation of what what happened beforehand. In other words, before the midrash gets carried away in a good way, and engages in a form of song, you know, on its own. Yes, there are things that are interpreted, but ultimately it's 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 a kind of song. It's a Midrashic song. This is kind of taken into um, a way of interpreting what happened at Shirat Hayam, where everybody and everything, Malachim, children, and even, um, even fetuses are engaged in Shirat Hayam. We'll take like a, a five-minute break. Is that long enough? And we'll do the next thing, which is from Shir Shim Rabba, which is somewhat connected, but not really. Okay. <laughs>